turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 6, which records the famous Daniel in the lion's den story, as our study leader picks it up at verse 11. The heart of this story is that we have an all-powerful living God who is in control of history and can handle our enemies and who will lift us out of the den safe and sound. Being raised in the Adirondacks as a kid, uh, black bears were part of our everyday lives during the summer. When I went hiking with some of my friends up in the Adirondacks, black bears were just a normal part of our routine. For example, here in Texas, you got to East Texas, when my kids and I, with Mary, when we would go camping out at Tyler State Park at night, the raccoons came out. Any of you ever been, you've had the raccoon just attack you in East Texas? Well, where I was raised, black bears, we had lots of raccoons, but not quite as many bears as raccoons, but black bears were part of your camping experience. Before you sit there and cringing and say, how does any, everybody in the Adirondacks get eaten? One nice thing about black bears in the Adirondacks is they're not nearly as aggressive as the brown bears of the Rocky Mountains or up in Montana or up in Yellowstone Park. Uh, brown bears in the West are a lot more aggressive. So usually it was more like having these gigantic raccoons that were great big nuisances. I remember one night I had told a group of girls, be sure to put your food tie it up in a tree. They forgot. About 2.30 in the morning, I heard these horrible screams, and I woke up, and this big old black bear had torn down their tent, grabbed their big knapsack that was filled with sandwiches. I flashed my flashlight. I saw this great big rear end of a black bear, high-tailing it with its mouth filled with their things, shaking its sandwiches going everywhere, and most of the time, it was just a big joke. But to be honest with you, there was this ancient lure of these old Adirondack bear trappers. And all of you that have been raised in the woods, and I'm sure you've been exposed to this kind of a thing. As a kid, we would be told about these trappers that would live up near Mount Marcy, and they would set these contraptions right here. And that thing, you pull it out, and it sets... And then you put it on the bear's track. These old Adirondack trappers would look in the woods and you can see where the bear goes down for water and what his basic lumbering through the woods is. They'd put this right in his path. They would cover it with brush. And the idea was for the bear to put his paw right in the middle of that contraption and that's the triggering mechanism that's all covered up. And then wham, those teeth shut on his legs. Obviously, this is before the days of animal rights. You can imagine what they'd say now. And uh, then the trapper would come and he'd do away with the bear and then they'd have nice bear skin rugs, okay? Now you can imagine, you can just feel what this trap would do. You can imagine if one of your children were on a nice Adirondack hike and unsuspecting they step on this thing, man, it would break a child's leg and it was just a devastating thing. Would you look at this trap? I want you to feel the horror of walking down through the path in the forest and you step in one of these bear traps. Because as we open up to Daniel chapter 6 and we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 6 verse 11, I want you to know that you have treacherous enemies that are trying to set bear traps like this in your life this week. We turn to Daniel chapter 6 and pick up the story. I challenge you about the need to follow Daniel's example in sanctifying the day. 
We learned in Daniel chapter 6 that as his enemies looked at his life, and we think about this young diplomat, which is one of the ideas that we're talking about. You're all priests. You are all servants of God. You are the ones that represent the kingdom of Christ in your marketplace, in your Monday through Saturday world. And we learned that Daniel started out as a 14-year-old kid walking with the great I am. We learned that Daniel was in his 80s, and he's still walking strongly with God. That's what I covet for every one of you. And I challenge you, how did he do it? It's because from the time he was a little kid, he spent personal time alone with God. Three times a day, which meant he was sanctifying the day. He began the day worshiping the Lord, connecting with the God that gave him his existence. Then at noon, he stopped again, and he worshiped the Lord. He prayed, he bowed towards Jerusalem, and then at the end of the day, he closed his day by praying to Yahweh again. And we talked about the fact that when his enemies looked at his life, they couldn't find anything in his diplomacy as a government official. They couldn't find anything in his diligence. He wasn't lazy. They couldn't find anything in his integrity. As they looked at Daniel's life, the only thing they could find is this guy really worships Yahweh, and they decided to take him out because of his worship of Yahweh. A lot of you made a commitment that you were going to try to follow Daniel and carve out some personal time with the Lord. How have we been doing? I want to really keep challenging one another. How many of you have found that the Lord does meet you? when you start to carve out consistent time. Is that true? This thing is for real. Daniel shows us that you need to connect with God on a daily basis. And I'm going to say it again. I told you the last time I taught you, the first thing that the lion of Satan, the lion that goes about the roaring lion trying to take you out, the first bear trap he'll set for you is to take away your quiet time. Bob and I are with a bunch of pastors up in North Dallas, and really from all over the Metroplex. And we had an open discussion. And this is what came up. These pastors that are responsible for teaching in the body of Christ, they said the first thing that goes is our intimate time, our personal time with God. Because Satan knows how to set this bear trap. Now, the second thing I want you to realize is where we pick it up And look at verse 11 is that when you start walking with God and you start really connecting with him, you're going to face enemies that are at work, that are colleagues right at your side, and they're going to want to take you out. I'm just going to be realistic with you. As you start to really walk with Christ, you need to be prepared and realize that I will have treacherous enemies who try to set traps for me. Let's see the trap that Daniel's enemies spring on him. Look at verse 10. We'll begin right there. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room. This is Daniel 6, verse 10. Where the windows were opened up towards Jerusalem, three times a day, he got done on his knees. That's what we've been talking about. And he prayed and he gave thanks to God, just as he had done before. And it was the habit of his life. Then these men, these men are the treacherous enemies that want to take him out. Then these men as a group found Daniel praying and asking God for help. How many of you think praying and asking God for help is really a good thing? That's commendable, isn't it? In fact, even most pagans think praying and asking God for help, hey, I've had a lot of unbelievers say, I don't believe in that stuff, but man, you got to be sure to cover the bases. Dave, you keep right on praying. 
But you're going to realize there are going to be those that try to use that against you, your walk with the Lord. It says they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king, and they spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not punish? Now, notice they're cunning. They go before Darius, and they said, they don't just go and say, hey, Daniel's breaking your command. They're cunning. They're treacherous. They're deceitful. And you're going to face unbelievers. There are those that will be your enemies because of your commitment to Christ. And Daniel's going to teach us about how we live in Babylon. One of the great, great things that the book of Daniel teaches us is not just that the Messiah is coming and there's going to be a great kingdom that's established on the earth, but how do you live right now in the image? How do you live like we're in the latter part of the image very possibly? How do you live right now in a world system that's not totally committed to Jesus, that's not totally worshiping the living God? How do you do that? Daniel's shown us how to do it. And he warns us and says, you're going to have enemies, and the enemies are smart. They go to the Darius and they appeal to his pride. They say, King, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God, small g, so they're not worshiping any one true God, but all the gods, anyone that prays to any God or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den. Then the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. This is part of the inferiority from the kingdom of Babylon. If this story would have taken place under Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar would have just reversed himself and says, I'm the great king. I gave a decree that you needed to worship me. I blew it. I was wrong. It was stupid. And Daniel goes free. But under the second kingdom, which is not as centralized in its power, the law of the Medes and Persians, the law began to take precedence over the authority of the king. And that's what Daniel means, that in the second kingdom, he doesn't have quite the power that Nebuchadnezzar had under Babylon. Does that make sense? And that's the key to the story. Because Daniel's enemies got him, gotcha, under Persian law. We're not going to be able to reverse it. Notice what it says. Then they said to the king, Daniel, and now the king, I can just see Darius says, oh, no. Have you ever been caught and you knew you really blew it and your enemies got you? Well, Darius is feeling that right now. Then they said to the king, Daniel, notice they use his Jewish name in the story, which means, remember, you learned last week, and I taught you that God is my judge. Don in Hebrew means judge. It's not hard to remember. Don means judge. El, God. I, the letter for personal pronoun, God is my judge. And so they use his Hebrew name, which is underscoring that he's one of the exiles from Judah. I want to teach you something about your enemies. As a believer, walking with the living God in the secular marketplace, you need to teach your children and you need to recognize that as the Lord has given you giftedness, every one of you has been given skills by the Lord. Daniel was skilled intellectually. Daniel was skilled in diplomacy. We need a ton of Daniels in Washington, D.C. No matter who gets elected, we need a ton of Daniels. Leon in our church was a West Pointer in the Army, within the FBI. Now he works in the private industry. Leon, for years, was in the FBI like a Daniel. And right now, as I speak to you, the person sitting next to you represents the living God in the marketplace. 
you're going to spread out from this room into all different walks of life. I just used Leon as an example in education, in police work, in fire work, in working for GM, in working for the cement plants here in town. I want you to begin to think of I'm Daniel in the marketplace. Your giftedness will cause others to be jealous of you. Did you hear what I said? Your giftedness will cause others to be jealous of you. Daniel was in his 80s. He made it all the way through the Babylonian kingdom, and Darius, the Persian governor over the city of Babylon, sees this guy in his 80s, but the guy can still think. He has all these years of experience. He knew of his incredible diplomatic skills that were used by Nebuchadnezzar, so he's even thinking of making him the prime minister right underneath him, and the two other members of the triumphant are covetous. They're jealous. Every one of you has been gifted by the Lord, and you need to realize that as you exercise your gift, you will have enemies that will be jealous of you. That's the first thing I want you to notice. And you need to not be discouraged by that. You need to not let them block the exercise of your gift. You need to keep allowing the Holy Spirit to help you to find your giftedness if you're not sure what you're gifted. Keep trying a lot of things. Keep trying a lot of different opportunities. Keep moving, especially into the present marketplace. But don't let those that become jealous of you block you. Daniel never lets his enemies say, well, I'm out of here. I'm not going to serve the king of Persia. I'm not going to be in government. I'm just not going to be involved. It's too tough. Don't do that. The second thing I want you to know is a tough one. It's racism. In this case, it's anti-Semitism. Notice what they, they said. They used his, his Jewish name, who is one of the exiles from Judah. What is that? You can hear it. This Jew. This Jew. Now, I want every one of you to listen to me. One of the things that's going to quench the spirit in our church family is if we allow any this Hispanic this African-American, this Jew, this Northerner, this Southerner. And I want all of you to know, this is a subtle one. Okay? I've been reading the biography of Einstein. Einstein, in 1905, I think he was 26 years of age, wrote four papers that totally blew away Newtonian physics. It took years for him to get the Nobel Prize. You know why? Because of jealousy. A German physicist hated Einstein because he was Jewish and because he was so incredibly gifted. Because as a 26-year-old, you'd go to hear a lecture and he would play Mozart on the violin, which drove physicists nuts. And he was arrogant in some ways, but he was incredibly skilled. And this German, one of his colleagues, worked day in and day out to take Einstein down. It eventually led to Einstein having to flee Germany and come to Princeton, the United States. Aren't you thankful that that happened? But I want you to know, you all sit here piously, and for, I can use Jews because most of you aren't like me. I was raised with Jewish people. But you're raised with Hispanics. You're raised with African Americans. 
You're raised with everything in between. And one of the things I want to tell you as your, as your pastor, as we grow and our community changes, just like we've done with the age groups, like you notice, there are, there's children and there are middle age and there are senior saints here. Everybody look around, right? That's by design. So children, we welcome you. Seniors, we welcome you. And everything in between. Our leadership, the elders have made a conscious decision. We're not going to make the church like a radio station. So you're going to have to learn to get along. But I got a bigger dream. As Midlothian grows culturally, I don't want us to divide into the African-American church, the Hispanic church, the Caucasian church, the everything-in-between church. And the only way we're going to do that is if you start working right now and I start working right now against those Jews, those African-Americans. And my friend Tony Evans up at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship has exactly the same problem, only they say, oh, those whites. Daniel got thrown into the lions because of those Jews. That's how serious it gets. It's a very deep, dark trap of the evil one. And it's easy to sit here Sunday morning, but where it comes out is the way you teach your kids and the way you talk after the service. The evangelical community needs to be a model to the world. And we can't just go to Africa. We can't just go to Asia and reach those peoples out there. And what it means is that you let those Jews into leadership. That's where it really gets tough. When they start taking positions that you wanted, and the jealousy flares. Are you with me? That's what's happening. These Chaldeans are saying, those Jews, that was my position. And they attack him, and they're going to take him out. The third thing is they hate Daniel's God. They say, notice they say, he doesn't pay attention to you, O king. This decree in writing, he still prays three times a day. That is a lie that Daniel doesn't pay attention to the king. He gave his life paying attention to Nebuchadnezzar. He gave his little bit now as an 80-year-old paying attention to Darius. The one thing Daniel is is a faithful, trustable servant of the government that he served. But there's one place where he'll disobey, which I want all of you to disobey. I want you like Daniel. I want you to be loyal, faithful servants to your government. But when your government asks you not to pray to the living God, I want you to go, wait a minute. And you don't have to carry, I'm not going to ask you, your pastor teacher, to carry placards. I'm not going to ask you to be big demonstrators. But I'm asking you, in your business, in your school, everywhere you go, I want you to keep praying like Daniel did. I want you to keep your habits of godliness. And I want you to do it not because you're obnoxious. I want you to do it not because you've got a chip on your shoulder. But I want you to do it because the living God, you're totally dependent upon him that you've got to spend that time with him because he's such a loving, faithful, loyal king. And what I want you to know, this is much more powerful than rebellion. You see, in armed rebellion, you recognize that the government has power and you just try to seize it. But in praying, you're saying the government doesn't have absolute power over me. Only the true God does. And in the end... That's much more powerful. And in this case, it led to unexpected friends. 
One thing I want you to know, so far I've been talking to you about the bear trap and the enemies. So, and one of the things before I leave there and talk about some of the unexpected friends you'll have, one of the things that really, really hurts me as I read this story is, what about the jealousy in me? You see, we're talking about two kingdoms here, the kingdom of the lion that is seeking to devour us, not the true lion of Judah, but the lion of Satan or adversary. He tries to make us jealous so that we block the gifts of others. He tries to make us racial or rejecting those that are not like us. And we do it in our jokes, and we do it a lot of different ways. He tries to get us as the father of the true God to be joining Daniel's enemies. He tries to get us not to be obedient to those that we're responsible for, not to be a good employee, and not to be faithful. And we become lazy, and then we slide away and become part of the enemy territory. That's one of Satan's vicious bear traps. So my prayer for you, and I want you to get really burned. We need to help each other day today. How do you live in Midlothian and Waxahachie and Cedar Hill in the Dallas-Fort Worth area? How do you live in Texas right in the middle of the marketplace not being infected by jealousy, by racism, by, by not doing a good, loyal job to those that we're responsible to. And most of all, how do we keep praying and expressing our dependence upon the Lord? I want to tell you some good news. As you live for Christ in the marketplace, you're not going to just face Daniel's enemies. You're also going to face friends in unlikely high places. You see, all the way through, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and he was a good guy or the bad guy. Tell me, everybody. Bad guy. He is the one that says, he says, I'm going to kill all the wise men in Babylon unless they reveal the dream. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar decided, I'm not going to be just a head of gold. I taught you that Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to be the whole image. And he says, if you don't bow to my image, I'm going to throw you into the furnace, which is parallel to the lion's den in chapter 3. Is that a good guy or a bad guy? Bad guy. In chapter 5, with Belteshazzar takes the goblets from the temple of Jerusalem, and he's drunk as a skunk, and he's immoral, and he's laughing at the great I am when the fingers come on the wall. Belshazzar, a good guy or a bad guy? He's a bad guy. And this is great. I want you to teach your kids how wonderful God is in the way that he communicates to you. Because as I'm reading this story, I'm going to expect Darius to get mad as a hatter. And he's going to just be furious with Daniel because he disobeyed him and throw him into the lion's den and be laughing all the way. But notice what it says. It says then, it says then the, uh, verse 16. So the king gave orders. And they brought Daniel, threw him into the lion's den. But before that, the king is distressed. In verse 16, it says, The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue me. And notice it also says, When the king heard this in verse 14, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. And I expect the next line to be, Because Daniel disobeyed him, but instead he was determined to rescue Daniel and to make every effort. He made every effort until sundown to save this guy. This is an awesome thing, and this is what I live for as a pastor. People that I started out with in 1973 started our, our church family with a group of men and women. Some of them were my enemies. They laughed at us. They thought we ate bugs and jumped over pews and did all kinds of weird things. I've shared with you those stories. I actually did go into the post office. And a dear Church of Christ sister thought I was a cult. And she wouldn't even talk to me. If I bought stamps, she wouldn't even look at me. How do you react to that? How do you react to your enemies? 
the incredible thing about grace is that grace gives you unexpected friends in high places. Darius, you would expect if you were Daniel for this Persian king to be his enemies, but he turns out to the rest of the chapter to be his friend. And that's the wondrous story of grace. And it helps you not to live with a chip on your shoulder in the marketplace. One of the things I want to really help all of you as followers of Daniel, living for the Messiah in the marketplace, not to live in the marketplace with a chip on your shoulder. Because you're going to find out that there's unexpected friends. Darius was touched by Daniel. It's obvious from this story, as Darius tries to save Daniel, Daniel had become his friend. And that's what's going to happen in your life as you witness to your friend at school and you follow Daniel in your college and as you live for the Lord, the living God in the marketplace, in your business, whatever you do, you're going to have friends that over the years, they're attracted to you because you're faithful, because you're loyal, because you keep your word. And they're going to say, man, there's something, there's something intangible. There's something sustaining. There's something powerful in this person's life. And I want it. I want to be close to them. Notice what Darius says. Darius says to Daniel, verse 16, the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. That's what I want my unbelieving friends to say of me. Isn't that awesome? How many of you would like your unbelieving friends? You got terminal cancer. You get the bad news. This is a lion that's facing our church family. This is real stuff. Yesterday, I just came back from Four Wheeling. Great fun, great celebration. Hey, Dr. Locker, and I'm there at his house, and he's gone home to be with Jesus. 66 years of marriage, amen? That's pretty incredible. But the line of death, as they put him on a little gurney and they take him outside, a lot of you are scared to death of that. And you should be, because death is a horrible, evil thing, and it's fearsome but you shouldn't have no hope. I'm at a party. Jonathan Hurst is heading for the Air Force, so we need to pray for Jonathan. He goes tomorrow. I was at a party getting ready to eat some really good Dave Hurst desserts. Phone rang, CL and Pat Ward. They got a call yesterday, and they found their daughter dead in her bed. Real lion jaws. CL and Pat, as I was with them late last night, CL saying, daddies aren't supposed to bury their daughters. And they're not. When all of you didn't know, they're not. That's the lion. Your heavenly daddy hates that stuff. So whether it's financial crises, those are really big ones. Those are really, really big ones. But you're facing littler ones. You're facing job loss and threats and you're facing struggles with your kids, those are the lions. And Darius, the friend in unexpected places, raises the incredible question that we all need to ask ourselves. He says this, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought in place over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Isn't that funny? There's a, that's kind of funny. You throw a guy in the lion's den, and you got to put a big stone over it and then seal it so that nobody could come and get Daniel out of there. 
Well, if you know anything about these Persian lions that they went hunting for and put them in a pit, in fact, at the end of the story, they throw some other people in the den and they're killed instantly. So what's the deal about putting the stone over the lion's den? You see, I want you to know something. The evil one, the lion of Satan that's trying to destroy us, is very cunning, is very skillful, but he's irrational. You need to get that down. Because in, he's very foolish. Now, just stop and think. Darius throws, has to throw his friend into the lion's den. He just told them, I hope the Lord will deliver you. May the Lord that you serve deliver you. They put a big stone over the mouth of this pit, and then the king has to seal it with his signet ring. That's to make sure that nobody disturbs what happens in the den. Well, what's going to happen in the den? And is it going to make a lot of difference if somebody comes during the night and takes the stone away and jumps in there? Yeah, you'll have a big mess on your hand. Where is Daniel? That's the story. You could play, instead of where's Waldo, you play, which lion has Daniel? But Darius can't sleep. Some of you can't sleep. You're like Darius. In this story, I want you to move from being like Darius because you can't sleep to becoming like Daniel. I just love this story. I just love the way it's written. Notice the king, ordinarily he'd go back, bring in the food, have a several-course meal, bring in the entertainment. You'd have different groups come in, probably different country singers, and you'd have some classical music. And this night, it's all shut down. Darius can't sleep. It says that he couldn't sleep. It said, then the king returned to his palace. He spent the night. He wouldn't eat anything. He went without entertainment. And he couldn't sleep. At the first let of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the lion's den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice. I love this. Daniel, servant of the living God. Has Daniel been a good testimony to Darius? Daniel, servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, he reviews it. Serve the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? That's the big question. And Daniel answered, O king, live forever. O king, live forever. My God sent his messenger. Could even be the Lord Jesus. Yahweh, the messenger of, of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Maybe it is the stone cut out without hands coming into the, into the lion's den early. And he shut them out of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found in him because he had trusted in his God. This is the heartbeat of the whole chapter. Daniel trusted in God. Now get this. Daniel trusted in God. Now what does it mean to trust God? Every one of you in this room are like Daniel's enemies. They trusted in their jealousy. They trusted in their racism. They trusted in their rejection of true worship. They trusted in their schemes. They believed that they could manipulate things. And so far, the story is totally unjust when Daniel gets thrown in the pit. I want all of you to know, stay with me as we close. It's real important. As you live your life today, a lot of you are living your life for justice right now, okay? It's unjust 
that seal and pet lost their daughter yesterday. It's not fair. In fact, you're not supposed to die in your 40s. You know what? You're not supposed to die in your 90s either. In fact, you're not supposed to get to be 90. That's not the beauty, the truth, the love of your God that you worship. God didn't create human beings to just have the American dream and to be born, to go to school, to get educated, get a job, play with a few toys, go on a few vacations, retire, and then die. So, like, I want you to understand that God has something much bigger than that. A lot of you right now are dealing with things that really are tough. They're unjust. And I want you to know, like, I join you with that. Like, my life this week, Bill Dyer is, had a stroke, and he's recovering, but it's not fair that he can't go fishing in Frost, that he has to be in a rehab center, and he doesn't even connect all of his thoughts. That isn't fair. It's not just. It's not right. And I want you to know that you decided, human being, whether you're going to live today for justice or are you going to trust in the only God that can bring justice? I want to tell you, that as I close, I want you to understand this story. Right now, the Lord God in heaven doesn't execute justice instantaneously in every one of your situations. Both when you're attacked unjustly and when you attack others. Because right now, the living God of the universe who is totally just is acting on mercy and grace. You know what that means? As I live today, whatever I might face, I don't ask the question, it's not fair. I ask the question, thanks for the gift of today. I don't ask the question, is it fair now? I ask the question, is it grace? So when I'm going over to be with Billy, who just lost her husband of 66 years, I don't say in the car, dear Lord, this sucks, and I hate this. I do hate it. But I say, Lord, thank you that this is not the last chapter in the story, that we're not going to go young doctor, young nurse, World War II career, young practice powerfully blessed in Brownwood, beautiful ranch, go buddy with his kids, go hunting, have good time. They grow old, have to come and live with their, with their kids, and then they're gone. And that's the end of the story. There's another den where they rolled the stone in front of it, and Satan did his same thing. Satan rolled the stone, they sealed it, so it would be sealed. But the ultimate God is my judge, the ultimate judge of the universe, when he came the first time, chose to face everything that the unjust, evil, vindictive, murderous Satan can bring against him. And that's why Jesus struggled on the cross, breathed at his last, and they put him in the tomb. 
And I love this story. Some of my Old Testament scholars don't believe in this story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den is small potatoes. God taking one of his servants and causing big pussycats to not be hungry for a few hours is little bitty stuff. Like, I do not stumble over the question of, is God strong enough to close the mouth of lions? So if, if any of you go to school at UT where they try to get you to move away from your faith or to Harvard or Yale, and they tell you you can't believe in miracles anymore, and they tell you you can really believe in Christianity, but you don't want to believe in those nutty Old Testament stories, I want to give you as your pastor the truth. This is a little story. If I rejected Christianity... I'm going to tell you why I would reject it. You say, man, that's weird. Our pastor is going to tell us why I reject Christianity. I would reject Christianity, not over Jonah in the whale or the big fish, but I just read to my grandkids. I wouldn't reject it over Daniel in the lion's den. I would reject it over the Son of God dead in the garden tomb because that's the biggie. Everything else is small potatoes. But I believe with all my heart that the evil one tried to seal the tomb just like he tried to seal Daniel. And when the disciples came, like Darius came, like when Mary Magdalene came and Mary came, and they weren't even expecting, Darius says, oh, Daniel, was God able to save you? He said, yes, he was, because I hadn't done anything wrong. Get me out of here. He doesn't even say that. They lift him out. Jesus had already had the stone rolled. The angels had to roll the stone away because Jesus came right up at that grave, let him see the grave close. And the ultimate judge of the universe, my Savior and Lord, rose again from the dead. And what that assures you, is it means as we face death, as we face sickness, as we face struggles with our kids, as we face marriages that are struggling, as we face a whole lot of tough things, we can rest we can trust. And that's the big question. Do you believe that the God whom you serve continually is able to deliver you? And you will illustrate that by the way that you walk through this week. It closes with Daniel's enemies being thrown to the lions, then they're all destroyed with the women and children. I want all of you to know that that raises an issue of justice. Persian law would often include kids and wives. The text tells us the story. The Old Testament tells us in Deuteronomy 24, 26, under Mosaic law, children could not be punished for the sins of their fathers. Ezekiel 18, the prophet Ezekiel, reminds us of Deuteronomy 24, 6. So don't fight with God. The story is not telling you that God had innocent people murdered. So you can run away from trusting him could you say, well, he isn't fair? You see how that question of fairness comes up? What this story is saying is that there's a just, holy God, and ultimately, those that are like Daniel, that trust in the promises, that believe in the great promise, the Lord's going to protect them. Who were these enemies? These enemies were jealous, they were racist, and they murdered. You live in a world where there's really bad guys, really, really bad guys. And those bad guys can be in us. That's why we need the cross. And unlike a lot of our modern thinking where there's no bad guys, 
The Bible's going to tell you a true story. You're a Nazi officer. You oversee Auschwitz. Little kids, teenagers, Jewish moms and dads, six million of them, a million and a half little kids. And you go home every night, you think your kids don't know what you're doing. You think your wife doesn't know what you're doing. You think there's total innocency. There were engineers that designed, just like you engineers designed roads, that designed ovens. There's train engineers that drove trains. So before we get all upset and say, how in the world could God ever have the lions eat bad people? I want you to know something. That the Bible says that one day there's going to be justice. And the living, holy God of the universe is going to eat all the bad guys in pure, holy righteousness. That's why Darius closes by saying, let us all fear him. Let us reverence him. Let us worship the living God because his dominion reigns. And one of the things that I want to learn to do is to leave the question of justice with the living God. And so as I read the Old Testament, the living God says, David, I won't execute children for their parents. You can leave the question of justice with God. The God that gave his son to die for you on the cross is not going to fill hell with baby's bones. That's just not the case. That makes sense? You can trust the character of God. But I want you to think really hard. You know what your friends are really asking? Or you know what we're really asking when we say, will God do this? What about those who have never heard? What about those, will it be fair? How could a loving God ever send anybody to hell? What we're actually saying in our heart is, I don't want to face God for myself today. You've heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den. You've heard the story of Jesus being sealed in the tomb. You've heard the story of Jesus conquering death and telling you he's going to bring a kingdom one day where all those questions of justice will be answered. For example, what I believe is the little children that were in that tomb, you can ask them when you get to heaven. Talk to them about it. Maybe you'll even be able to talk to Darius. Most of all, you'll be able to sit down with his Savior and say, Savior, I didn't get this part of Daniel 6. Isn't that incredible? But until then, I want to warn you, don't let the question of justice block you from trusting the God of Daniel. Don't let the question of justice cause you to dart away and not trust and worship and believe in the God of Daniel who sent his son who conquered death.